Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, in a special episode linked to World AIDS Day, longtime AIDS activist and author Emily Bass on America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. PEPFAR stands for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, and it's still an emergency, right? It's been an emergency for 20 years. World AIDS Day is a day to recognize that we are 40 years into a pandemic, if you mark it from when the CDC report first came out. But Bush has a political calculus. He's not going to get Republican support for money for the Global Fund because Phyllis Schlafly is firing off faxes that say, you know, if you put money into this, it's a slush fund for my favorite pairing of Planned Parenthood and North Korea. You know, so it's countries and abortions. Emily, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much. Let's start with the big picture. You've worked for decades now as a journalist and activist on global health issues, particularly HIV AIDS. So you don't come at this from a traditional national security perspective, but what's right and wrong in in your view of viewing human security as a better frame for international affairs than national security? So I think the thing um, to remember is that HIV, which today is seen as a humanitarian issue It's an investment that America makes um, that George Bush, when he launched the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief in 2003, called a work of mercy. And can we now on refer to that as PEPFAR? So I don't have to say every one of those words. Thank you. So it it, in 2003, he's calling this a work of mercy. How can we not do this because of our compassion? But AIDS was a security threat. AIDS was defined as a health security threat. And so what what I and and in the Reagan administration, um, and the historian Jenny Breyer really pulled up this memo that's now in the public domain. But Negroponte actually writes a memo that essentially says, you know what, let's just forget our aid to Africa because these civilizations are going to collapse. Let's, let's just go elsewhere, right? Um, nation states collapsing is a security issue, right? And so HIV, AIDS is seen. HIV is seen as a security threat. Um, it's seen as a health security issue. It has that profile and that drumbeat going through the early, early years of the 21st century when we are still doing heel dragging about whether to invest in it. By the time Bush decides to do this, though, he's he's framing it not as national security, but as compassion and and humanitarianism. And what you have there is this sort of classic divide, but also something that um, a social scientist named Andrew Lakoff calls a conceptual mutation, right, which is where a virus goes from being um, a threat to being something we can handle. And the virus doesn't change. The genome doesn't change. But the sense of threat changes. And it happened with Ebola, he talks about, right, where we thought prior to 2014 that we could control this virus because we we would never leave villages. So where I'm going with all of this is that that we have this dichotomy between health security and securitized um, motivations for investments and humanitarian investments. And we do this with health all the time. This, this virus is a security risk. We're doing this for humanitarian reasons. If you took an idea of human security, right, if you took an idea of rather than sort of centering um, nation states or sort of political economies, but like what is going to ensure bodily integrity, right to health, right to life, um, we wouldn't be for all people and sort of understood that if we did that, if we actually were, if, if human security is the end goal, you are guaranteeing security from these pathogens. And we no longer have to be deciding, oh, is this in the humanitarian bucket? Is this in the, in the, the security bucket? Is this a pathogen of concern? Or is this one that we you know, treat because we're showing mercy? As long as we keep this dichotomy, we're going to continue to have these siloed funding streams. And frankly, we're going to continue to have pandemics. Mm-hmm. And, and I take it because that has been U.S. government policy virtually forever up until the story we're going to explore that, you know, do we treat it as charity, which is obviously subject to vicissitudes of the moment, um, or do we treat it as national security, which also is subject to changes? But but having that conceptualization of it as truly both, that that moves us forward in a in a in an important way in terms of being able to address future pandemics. Do I get that right? Yeah, that I mean, I, I think that that's exactly right. And I think we aren't there yet. You know, if you look at 
the international health regulations, which are the it's the checklist of things that you're that countries are supposed to do that sort of shows whether or not they're in a good health security space, right? None of those things um, include health systems resilience, include mm. health systems strengthening. It's it's do you have your lab capacity? Do you have your early warning systems? Do you have, you know, command and control centers? I mean, it's a very important stuff, but it's not framing the necessity to have clinics that people trust that they want to walk into, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what Paul Farmer calls stuff, space, supplies, staff. You know, essentially you need to have the, the things and the people and the trusted systems, and that falls into this health systems um, work that isn't the kind of thing that you tick off when you're evaluating whether a country is sort of meeting its global health security index requirements, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you have this sort of this dichotomized approach when in fact, part of responding to pandemics, whether they're long-term pandemics like HIV or emergent outbreaks is having a functioning system that's there whether there's a pandemic or not, right? And if we, do, if we don't have those, all of the stockpiles of vaccines and all these other things that we consider part of security, and they are part of health security, right? are not gonna be sufficient. And so it's sort of pushing at this idea that if you tick all these boxes that are in the sec health security the security framework, we will be sufficiently secure, pushing back and saying, well, actually, the, some of the things that we consider humanitarianism are actually part of our security. And how does this intersect with the concept that, that my political science background comes at this with, which is soft power, that mm -hmm. some of these areas, to treat them as national security, you, you envision them like global health. You see it as an issue of soft power that benefits the national interest at the same time that it's actually, no kidding, helping people. Uh, do you see that as a, as a valid framing for global health as part of soft power? So I think, I think it's, first of all, it is a framing, right? It's certainly when, when people have looked back at PEPFAR over the years, one of the things that they've looked at um, quite frequently is, is perceptions of America in countries that have received PEPFAR funding. And there's a hugely positive perception that is linked to this massive AIDS investment. Um, and so it is definitely, I think, a part of, it is, a, it is an aspect of soft power. That being said, the country that I spent the most time researching this book in and living in is a great example. Um, Uganda is a country that where the leadership and the politics have evolved over the years. Um, and there have been moments, and I talk about this in the book, there's a moment where um, the uh, ambassador and, and, his, um, and his political officers basically want to pull PEPFAR funding or flat, flatline PEPFAR funding. They want to turn off the taps because they're so fed up with the Museveni region. They just can't, and they have no other, they don't have a stick. So let's just, and the epidemiologists are saying, you can't stop treating people with HIV. And, in the, and the fact is that the government hasn't picked up treating anybody. So, so it's, it's soft power to a point, but then you get but to you a get point caught. where you're not going to pull yep. the funding because people are going to die. And so, you know, it's, it's, if you're really doing it as PEPFAR has been run, which is to try to, try to end epidemic levels of HIV infections, at a certain point, if that is your commitment, the ability to use it as a political um, uh, a bargaining to a, poli a political a piece of a political dialogue it becomes more and more limited. I do want to dig down on your experiences uh, in Uganda and elsewhere in Africa too. But first, let's set the stage for much of this conversation. What what was U.S. policy towards HIV and AIDS prevention in Africa? Let's say in the mid to late nineties, mm -hmm. kind of. Draw a picture for us of what was happening and just as importantly, what wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. So it's um, egregiously underfunded and incredibly risk averse. Hmm. And the, the risk is if we get into providing antiretrovirals, if we get into um, providing medications, and this is post-1996, which is when antiretroviral medications yeah. become available here, right? So we could back up further, but but if we're just post-96, it is... It is um, a real fear that um, that if we were to get into this, we would never get out of it. It would be expensive. It would be unsustainable. And so, rather than trying to do anything of substance, let's let's really just try to hang back. And, let's and minimize our investments. Let me let me uh, get more specific. There was that the view, all the way up to and including the president, or was that limited to? Uh, 
bureaucrats within each of these bureaucracies? Uh, how do we, when you say that was what we did or that was what they did, what, what makes up that group of people? Right. So, I mean, I think one of the places that the, that the book um, sort of, you know, hones in is, is the Clinton-Gore administration because it immediately mm-hmm. precedes, precedes sure. George Bush. And you have a couple things going on there, which is, of course, um, rhetoric about HIV, um, a sense that it's a, it's a growing sense that it is an issue of global concern. Sandy Thurman, who's the AIDS czar, mm-hmm. right, is, is beginning to do um, sort of AIDS safaris and bringing representatives and senators to see AIDS orphans and to meet them and to feel it. Which was extraordinarily effective with many senators and representatives. It was extraordinarily effective. And at the same time, you have Ken Bernard, who was the first physician to sit on the National Security Council, who really eloquently talks about this day. It was a day that the the Kursk submarine, they were discussing the Kursk, Kursk submarine disaster. Mm-hmm. And the, the king of Swaziland had recently given a speech and basically said, you know, a third of my population is going to die of AIDS. And, you know, Ken talks about being in this meeting and, and sort of saying, yes, this is a tragedy with the submarine, but like, what are we going to do about, you know, a third of the population of a country that's destabilization, that's all these different things? Like, that is also, you know, somebody said to you, you know, there's a, there's a, a militia in Swaziland that's going to kill 30% of the populations. And he talks about this sort of dead silence in the room. So, so you know, there's rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Sandy gets, you know, 100, 200 million dollars out for the life initiative um you know but there is also a lot of cautionary caution especially from USAID which historically that's the US agency for international development which is our sort of premier development agency but has a real caution around um what it classifies as sort of unsustainable um investments and and frankly you know treating black and brown people in poor countries for a chronic condition where there are no ambulatory care systems right you know, it's not going to look sustainable, right? But it, it may actually look like a moral imperative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, what you also have, again, and this is all, all public health is political and, 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 you know, politics often enters public health, is you have Gore as, as the, you know, the ally to the pharmaceutical industry, which has a lawsuit, the lobby, uh, pharma, has a lawsuit against the government of South, South Africa because of its Access to Medicines Act which gives it the right to um, make or import cheaper versions of drugs. And, and this gets away from the patents that had been written into everything, exactly. up to including GATT, the General Agreement exactly. on Exactly. So it's basically, it's basically South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa says, you know, when, we, when in, in certain situations, if these are essential medications, we are going to give ourselves the right to make or import generic, manuf- you know, generic versions of drugs to save yeah. our citizens' lives. And, the, and pharma brings a lawsuit, and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office puts um, South Africa on the trade watch list. So you have, and you have this mm. at every stage. You mm. have rhetoric about AIDS. You have a certain amount of investment. You have a development arena that is that is overly cautious, and then you have um, trade-related and economic and profit-driven interests running in the background at every stage with HIV. But, that's all. but in yeah. but prior to Bush and prior to two thousand three. Um, you have all of that running and, and it, a grotesque inaction. Yeah. So the, the way I envision that period, and please correct me if I've got this, this framing wrong, is the Clinton administration had what we would call a very mixed record on this topic. On the one hand, USAID funding was down. There was the, the defense of the pharmaceutical companies at the expense of, of so many lives. There was no major initiative like the kind we will be talking about. But there was, as you mentioned, for the first time, a National Security Council position on global health. And the administration— No, on health security. On health security. On health security. Important Clinton note. had read—I read, can't remember the book, but had yeah. read, read one of those you know, flu books or something. And right. so Ken Bernard is there um, okay. to, you know— Still a step forward. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. But you know, with, uh, with the issues having to do with uh, the other— I guess the other step forward for the Clinton administration, if I remember this right, is in May or, or June of 2000 that the administration did declare AIDS to be a threat to American security. So obviously there's a recognition, but maybe it's the second term syndrome. Maybe it's the, the lack of political capital to build on some. Maybe it's, you, as you point out, Al Gore looking to the next election and the support from pharma. But it, it almost seems like missed opportunity after missed opportunity to capitalize on some of those positives. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 
a decision to accept the world as it is, right? Um, you know, and and some people will say and have said that that only a Republican could have done PEPFAR because it, you know, it's such a massive investment and um, in foreign aid, which is a you know a spending category that you're going to get dinged on um, yeah. by Republicans, and even Bush, you know, faces some some resistance to it. Um, you know, and when I have talked to folks, you know, talked to Sandy Thurman and others about that time, there was also a real sense of, um, you know, and you can question, you know, whether this this was a, a, a gen, an inquiry that needed as much interrogation as it got, but this question of what can we really do? Mm-hmm. The drugs at this point are still ten to $12,000 a year, oh. you know, and, and we are not you know, seeing the president waive, you know, trade-related intellectual property, although the activists are demanding it. We are not seeing the U.S. push for access. I mean, we're in another situation of grotesque inequity, mm-hmm. right? And we're seeing even less of that. We're really seeing an acceptance that the drugs are going to be this much, and therefore, what could we do that would have meaning? And so that's why the Life Initiative is paying for two pills, one pill for the mother, one pill for the baby, Um very simple um, regimen that reduces the risk of transmission during, um, you know, late pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Um, not during breastfeeding. Doesn't do anything for the mother. Mm-hmm. But there's this sense of we don't know what we can do, which is also about we don't really want to try to do anything. We don't want to get in over our head. Right. So let's go to the, the continent now mm-hmm. because you spent significant time in Uganda and elsewhere in Africa. The president of Uganda in particular – uh, if I recall, he came into power 1986, mm-hmm. around there, <laughs> still yeah. still there today. Yep. Um, he he had a mixed record with uh, some positives, I think, on AIDS education in particular, but obviously some real inaction in other ways. Um, so up till about 2001, 2002, tell us what the situation on the ground in Uganda was like for HIV and AIDS prevention and treatment. You have... Um a country that's very aware of its AIDS problem and and willing to a certain degree to talk about it. And that sets it apart from many other countries in the region. And the the, the story that Museveni tells and that his his physician told me and you know the, that's sort of in the ether, right, is that he he sends soldiers to Cuba for training and there's mandatory HIV testing in 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 Cuba and essentially Castro says to Museveni, you have a real problem, yeah. right? And this is somebody who fought a guerrilla war to get into power and the yeah. military is going to be and is crucial to his security in mm-hmm. office. You can't have your military, you know, um, perishing, right? So so he has a political motive for being um, a leader on AIDS and he's also really savvy. He's really tuned in with how to take development concepts, mm-hmm. pioneer them in Uganda, make the the ideators of those concepts look good, and then Uganda becomes an exemplar, and then it kind of becomes something that can't fail, right? So, you know, <laughs> whether, you know, it, I, it, it is the original poverty reduction strategic plan, you know, the PRSP, which now becomes a prerequisite for um, qualifying for certain, um, you know, loans and so on and so forth. So it's, it's the opposite of the the bigotry of low expectations. Right. It's the burden of high expectations. The burden of high expectations, and then and then at a certain point it becomes right. You you can't fail because you know you are the example of the country that has, um, you know, given the World Bank the green light to you know require PRSPs or whatever it is. So Museveni is incredibly canny, and he becomes the president who talks about AIDS. He becomes the president who um, who s- says to his people, we got to do something. We got to sound the alarm. He's, he has a drumbeat playing on the radio. There's only three radio stations, and they're all, I think they're all state-controlled at that point. But, you know, but, you know, to sound the alarm, and he wants faith leaders, and he's talking about it. And there really is this moment of... Um, of sort of galvanization, right? Um, there's other things. I mean, I think the country is is ambivalent about, um, you know, its its statistics. There's a point where where journalists are banned from going to Rakai, which is where the disease was first um, identified, because you know Uganda doesn't want to sort of be, you know, there, there's a little of underplaying, right? You know, how how severe is this plague? But but overall, in that period leading up to um, you know, leading up to sort of major, um, you know, global mobilization, mm-hmm. Uganda has a reputation as being um, a place where 
the president is talking about HIV. He's given a real green light to researchers to work on it. And it's an incredibly open door to collaborators. So you have everybody. You have Hopkins and Columbia and the Russians are there. The Russian vaccine developers are there, you know, making, um, you know, HIV tests. And, and the Uganda Virus Interest Research Institute has the UK MRC. So it's I arrive in 2000 is the first time I get there. And, it, and it's flourishing in terms of engagement with HIV up to right up to the point where you'd actually be seeing anybody getting treatment and and that and nobody's getting treatment so it's it's a perilous time yeah. right it's it's a time where there's visibility there's organizing and it's and it's what can be done in the absence it's of a, it's a perilous time but also potentially fertile ground for what's to come because back in the US the new administration comes into power and even as the administration moves into its second year and obviously there's there's terrorism there's Afghanistan, there's you know, the buildup to the war in Iraq. Even through all that, it becomes clear that George W. Bush himself personally is determined to help address HIV AIDS yeah. in Africa. And I think it was in June of 2002, he has Josh Bolton, his deputy, one of his deputy chiefs of staff, ask Dr. Fauci the, the great question, if money were no yep. object, what would you do? Now that's, that's a good sign. Yeah. But people have asked questions like that before almost as a thought experiment and then it goes into the files and never never reaches the light of day. But something different happened here. How did we get to PEPFAR from from that situation where a commit was was made even in a time of war, we are going to seriously invest in this because the president is personally uh, attracted to this idea. How how do you get to this this massive undertaking that literally changed millions of lives in Africa? I mean, first of all, one of the things is is a lot of people thought Fauci was going to come back with a vaccine proposal because mm -hmm. he's an mm -hmm. immunologist, he's a vaccinologist, and there yeah. and and w the West Wing guys like some of them really thought he was going to come back and say, you know, if money were no object, I'd find you an HIV vaccine, right? You know, like yeah. you know, and he doesn't, right? He's he's recently been he's gone on a whirlwind trip with Tommy Thompson. Mm -hmm. He was asked Tommy Thompson, the HHS secretary, yes, secretary right. of the HHS, mm -hmm. um, um, because he was asked to sort of go see what was going on out there and, and come back with a proposal. And he comes back with a modest proposal, you know, which is still twice as much as what the, the Clinton administration done. It's $500 yeah. million for treating um, mother-to-child transmission. Because he was politically astute enough to know that th this is big but potentially doable. He wasn't yet there seeing, no, they really mean they what really if cost is it. no object. Right. And yeah. so then there's this moment where, you know, they announced the the mother to child transmission initiative, which it's important to know also that the whole time this is going on, um, through in, including in Clinton Gore, that that Congress is active. There are members of Congress that are incredibly active. That they are proposing initiatives. That um, you know Barbara Lee and and Tom Lantos and Henry Hyde and Bill Frist and John Kerry. That that, that there's a whole congressional thing happening in the background that is. Right at the point that this 500 million for for mother-to-child transmission, there's essentially the same thing coming from Congress. So mm -hmm. one of the things when we're sort of doing this pol political mapping is it looks like, you know, it's it, there's a lot of forces at play there, right? And then Tony Fauci really does this kind of remarkable. Tony Fauci and the West Wing crew that put this together. So Gary Edson and Josh Bolton and Kristen Silverberg and Jay Lefkowitz um, are the main people, and then Robin Cleveland gets called in. But they really go at it from a sort of, um, you know, venture capital MBA president kind of standpoint. And Tony Fauci and his deputy at the time, Mark Dival, who goes on to be a PEPFAR ambassador and head the Global Fund, basically just start, they just start calling in every piece of data that they can find mm -hmm. about what's possible. And I think about this a lot now because there's not, and they do it in complete secrecy, so I hope it's happening in complete secrecy right now. But like, for what we would do to do a massive global COVID vaccine program, mm -hmm. right? It's not just a, let's immunize 70% of the world, which is, or whatever our target is. You have to have the, the data. Supply the chains, data. you know, they're yeah. looking at maps and they're saying, okay, they have this hub and spoke model, which they've seen in Uganda, you know, where you have a, a hub, a hub uh, clinic, and then you have, you know, you can radiate out to, you know, tertiary clinics that mm -hmm. are less, staffed and they're basically going where's the HIV in this country if we put a hub here how many people would we reach if we wanted to treat 20% of the population how many hubs would we need they're looking at data from the Alaskan um, uh, you know sort of health services that use you know they're they're pulling everything they can because there's mm. not a lot 
Right. right? Um, and, and so people know something's going on because they're being asked over and over again for this information. And then they're iterating. They're trying it out with Gary Edson, whose office was outside the Situation Room, so he just used it as his conference room. And he's saying, go back and do it again, and go back and do it again. And so what, by the time they bring it forward to Bush, it's not just a check, which would go down as history as like, oh, wow, you know, largesse, which mm-hmm. frankly, you know, yeah. on some level, no one would have cared, right? I mean, like, like the way that we treat our humanitarianism, it is sort of like, well, did we give enough money? This is a fully baked proposal that mm-hmm. says, if, if we spend this money, we will train this many doctors, we will, we will, and the goal is to get 2 million people on treatment. And so... You know, I think the the how you get there and, and the sort of part of the lesson is is that there is this sort of application of of rigor and of data use and of modeling and of extrapolation that leads to a very, very focused strategy. And it is possible to do that. And it is it is not the norm, right? You need a lot of different factors to come together at the same time. It's not just the president's personal interest. It's it's not just the political will of some in Congress. It's not just the data collection. It, but but some kind of constellation there yeah. actually led to something remarkable. Uh, but what did PEPFAR bring in terms of resources, and how did its very structure prove as crucial as those billions of dollars? Right. It's It's a fantastic workaround for enormous dysfunction in the American <laughs> government, um, you know, which is, you know, essentially that USAI, our, our, our agencies, you'll hear this a lot now with, with the COVID plan, our whole of government approach, which we took with Ebola and we talk about a lot, but it can mean everything or nothing. It, it essentially, whole of government means somehow you're getting the Department of Defense, CDC, USAID, you know, in PEPFAR's case, the State Department, and the Peace Corps, all of which have presence in PEPFAR countries, to work together, which they've never done before. No, and, and it's not the only way the Bush administration tried it. The yeah. war in Iraq was involving the Department of Interior, the Department of yeah. Agriculture, and it was from the president saying, you all need to work together. Yeah. And Bill Frist and John Kerry had legislation that predated PEPFAR that proposed the same structure, um, which Gary Edson and Jay Lefkowitz claimed they were not aware of, I mm. think. Gary and, and Jay can re- correct me. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, but, but they remember sort of sitting together in, in the White House mess and be, basically being like, you know, USAID just can't run this. And, and if, CD, if HHS runs this, the parent organization for CDC, they'll think they're the World Health Organization. Right. Like, so we can't put either of them in charge. And so if we can't put either of them in charge, like, where are you going to put this? Right? right. Who And OK, you know, this has an element of working with countries. Uh, you know, where are we going to have clout? How mm-hmm. It's going to go in the State Department. Yeah, and, right? give, and give it ambassadorial rank. And we're going to give, and we're going to yeah. have it um, be run by someone who has a direct line to the president. Yeah, you know, who has the rank of ambassador, and and a lot of thought went into, you know, what, it, how that position would relate, what grade that would be at relative to the head of the Millennium Challenge Corporation and USAID and PEPFAR. So you really were supposed to have three folks, a, a, you know, a, you know, a, a, an even playing field across these development entities with, and then you would have, you know, kind of a synergistic development structure. This is because they're doing a lot of innovation in the development space, but it's going to sit in the state department. It's going to have an ambassador level position. They go ahead and they offer it um, to Randy Tobias. Randy Tobias, who is, who is a former executive of Eli Lilly and is sort of enjoying his retirement. And he comes and he talks to Bush and he says, you know, he basically was like, thank you so much. Like, I'd like to politely decline. Right. You know, and he said, come back and talk to us one more time. And he said, listen, like, it seems like you just want me to be the chair of a committee. And, and you know, you seem to be going to war, Mr. President, and you're not going to run your war with a committee. So, like, I just, frankly, like, I'm not. And so he, in his telling, right, he negotiates, um, you know, a real authority, which, which has sat with the head of PEPFAR ever since, for better or for worse. It's a very personality-driven program. Yeah. Every USAID administrator will try to put their stamp and they have an agenda, mm-hmm. but that is a legislated, earmarked endeavor. PEPFAR has earmarks around treatment and prevention, but you really can do things the way that you think that they should be done. And Tobias negotiates that, and he is, he's a hero to his staff, which is unlikely because—it seems unlikely— 
right, in in many ways, because he's an ex-drug company executive. And if you're going to be cynical about PEPFAR, you're going to go, oh, my God, you know, you just – this is – you're just pandering. But no, like – He had the right idea about what it would take to get it done. He is beloved by his staff. You know, he's beloved by Michelle Maloney-Kitts, who is, you know, a, a Berkeley midwife, you know, with, you know, completely opposite politics mm-hmm. and, and one of the most effective leaders she's ever worked with. So mm-hmm. – you know, there are these sort of surprising moments within this where there's decisions that, again, look cynical. It's also a bilateral program. It's not going to wait for countries to beef up their health systems. And it's going to go in and it's going to work with whoever's ready to go. And that's where PEPFAR has, has to this day, really sits on this, on this knife edge, if it's even an edge, of, you know, do the ends justify the means? If you're a person mm-hmm. with HIV waiting for treatment in Uganda or in many of these other countries— PEPFAR gets there faster than the Global Fund. Yeah. Right? Just a, briefly, uh, the Global Fund. Give give the uh, paragraph definition of that for people who aren't familiar. Sure. They probably are because of Bono from U2. If nothing right. else, they'll know Global Fund better than PEPFAR. But what what was the Global Fund and why was PEPFAR well, able Pe- to Global beat Fund's it? Global Fund's important. Global Fund is yeah. the is um, a multilateral mm-hmm. fund mm-hmm. that was um, that's a sort of the post-neoliberal sort of utopian version of right. how you would fight global AIDS. You would have a multilateral pot, country proposals would come in and draw from that pot. Mm. The proposals would have to be developed by a collaborative mechanism that had not just government but other stakeholders. So you have the voices of the people funneling up and and proposals that then get funded rather than and it upends the paradigm of donor driven aid, which basically right. says we're giving you X million dollars to do you know, why things, and, and we have the program designed because we adapted the model that we use in Vietnam, and we're going to go use it in Senegal. It or all whatever. sounds good in theory. It's really good in theory. Mm-hmm. It's never been done before, and um, you, the U.S. Um, uh, shortchanges it, right? So Kofi Annan calls for it, in, and this is, PEPFAR exists in part because of the Global Fund, because mm-hmm. um, there's momentum building. P, you know, an activist movement, a transnational movement, and academics, and Jeffrey Sachs, and you know, you know, world leaders are essentially beginning to say you cannot possibly allow this plague to continue and deny access. We cannot, you know, there's beginning to be, a, this is impossible. Okay, so we're going to have a global fund, and the prices come down, and CIPLA says I can make the drugs for a for dollar a day. Mm. So we need something to buy it. And so this procurement mechanism that becomes a sort of, you know, again, an I- ideal way to begin to change the aid paradigm is advanced. And... Um, you know, Jeff Sachs has done back of the envelope calculations and the U.S. fair share contribution should be a billion dollars. And George Bush gets out in the Rose Garden with Kofi Annan and says, hey, I'm going to write a $200 million check, mm. which is basically saying to the entire world, you can underfund this. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Global Fund is a great idea with a signal from the and the, let's also recognize that the U.S. is one, the largest contributor to the Global Fund and is about to host the next replenishment round in the coming year. Global Fund is crucial. We should continue to fund it and to fu- and to expand our contribution. So I'm talking about a moment where we did shortchange it. We also have really contributed to and and should. So I want to yeah. I want to sort of all of this stuff is ongoing to this day. But but Bush has a political calculus, um, which is that uh, if there's he's not going to get Republican support for money for the Global Fund because um, Phyllis Schlafly is firing off faxes that say you know if you put money into this it's a Slush fund for my favorite pairing of Planned Parenthood and North Korea. Ugh. Those two, you know, so it's countries and abortions, you know, bad countries, yeah. you know, and yeah. so so it's it has to be tightly controlled. It's going to be a bilateral, but also, and this is where it becomes uncomfortable if you're somebody who says, I want country ownership, you know, there it really is true that if you want to treat people with HIV as quickly as possible, you, you may need to work outside the government system. And that's what happens mm. in Uganda. Mm. Right. And that's what PEPFAR gives itself the right to do by being a bilateral is basically saying we're not going to wait for your proposals from the country level. We're going to come in. We're going to set our targets. We're going to work with your partners, but we're going to work with whoever's ready. And you're you're describing that in Uganda because you were back there on the Fulbright from what fall of 2004 to late 2005. The oddity to me in this moving it forward is at the beginning of the Trump administration, you know, another case of what what a real mixed message, because. Trump attacked foreign aid generally. He right. mocked African countries and derided people from Africa. But he did get a PEPFAR extension he did. in 2018. He did. Um, how, how did that happen? He Why is PEPFAR still I know, alive? I know. Um, I mean, 
look, there's a few things that are that are in place. I, I think one thing um, you have um, uh, there. Katie Talento is back. So Katie Talento is a, repu- uh, a legislative expert, um, a policy wonk, and as she likes to say, you know, she, uh, little Republican girls don't get MPHs. You know, she's a public health expert, right? And she um, is a champion of PEPFAR. She, too, cried at the State of the Union in 2003. Um, She's got, you know, um, extremely conservative politics. She thinks contraceptives break your baby maker. I mean, she's got, you know, um, but she's a PEPFAR champion. And she's a and she is advising the Trump pants transition team. And then she starts to get phone calls um, from people saying, you know, who you should really keep on is Debbie Burks. Right. She really keep on and 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 Katie, as she says it, you know, you know, basically, it's like no, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and then no, you should really talk to her, right? And and people are going to bat for for Ambassador Burke, so that right. so which is a great story to tell because honestly, outside of the global health and public health communities, um, Debbie Burks was not a household name in the late '90s and 2000s, even though she was crucial to so many Except of these efforts. In my house. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is one of the great things about. <laughs> about hearing this full story of PEPFAR and how it developed is, and I'm not going to put a number on it other than to say it's got to be upwards of 90% of the American public, even those invested in international affairs, had not heard of Dr. Burks before COVID and before this all happened. And yet she was crucial to the global HIV AIDS effort. And when she ran PEPFAR, actually did some remarkable things regarding data and quite aggressive actions to make sure that the program did continue. You got to back up a little bit, right, mm-hmm. back into Obama-Biden and this sort of embattled program, this kind of yeah. beleaguered program, right, in, you know, which is which is fighting for funding, you know, flying in Peter McGinney, um, you know, who is one of the, the AIDS HIV doctor who, you know, whose hub and spoke model helps inspire PEPFAR mm-hmm. to talk to Zeke Emanuel and to talk to Gail Smith. And he remembers being yelled at in these meetings. Right. You know, and just this idea that we can't, you know, because and, and then and basically he leaks a story or he. Le- no, I don't know if he does it. Let's separate that out. He's the photo in a story about a leaked letter um, that fr- that that from CDC mm-hmm. telling its treatment providers in Uganda to halt initiating new treatment new people on treatment, right? So this is activist media savvy. This is, this is again, transnational collaboration. It's activist physicians, you know, basically just pushing back. You can't stop treating people. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then you have, um, in sort of a, a like, made-for-movie development, you have a scientific breakthrough, which determines that if you put people on treatment, people with HIV, and they don't have a detectable viral load, they can't transmit which we've actually known scientifically for years, we've had evidence for, but now we have a study. And so then treatment is prevention, and then you suddenly have this idea, well, if you could get a certain number of people on treatment and undetectable, that would actually lead to epidemic control. So you've been going along for this treatment mortgage, where does it end? How do we get out of this? Well, if treatment is prevention, and you put enough people on treatment now, you're gonna, you're gonna get out of epidemic, you know, the epidemic. You're gonna mm-hmm. end the, the, you know, you're gonna bring you know, the the sort of ratio of new infections to deaths, you're going to right the ship and you're going to get to r naught. you know, and all these things that sadly now a lot of us know about. And the UN AIDS writes a strategy about sort of ending the AIDS epidemic. It's complicated. I have a, I have a critique of it. But essentially, it is, it is rocket fuel for an, somebody who's ambitious and really does believe in the possibility of ending the HIV epidemic, and that's Debbie Burks, mm-hmm. right? So she becomes... Global AIDS ambassador in 2014, mm-hmm. and um, takes this idea that you you know with treatment and viral suppression, and if you just hit targets and if you just get the data, like you can achieve epidemic control. And she she just runs that program against data and against targets with a relentlessness and a focus um, that is that is um, exhausting. Is it fair to say that it it res- she receives a lot of resistance to that approach at first, but she did win some people over when they saw what the data could bring. I think that the, I think that you know I just I just was talking with some of the Hopkins researchers who who were part of the Rakai project, which has mm-hmm. continued to it's now treating one hundred twenty thousand people in Uganda. Responsible That's right now, right now at this mm-hmm. point, right? Um, and they were just like you know the thing is like it was weekly data weekly data and they're like in america like would you you know would you even get away and you know as the one of the uh, one of the um 
the moderator of this of this discussion I was having was like, yeah, it's the CDC reports every two years, which you know, you wow. know, which I, you know, so. So there, there, there's a, there was, there's definitely a relentlessness. There's a tenacity, right? There's that, you know, as one of her friends says in the book, she's a zealot, and 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 it and it's exhausting, and it's but it's also, it is moving countries towards more and more people on treatment. And why aren't you getting the men? And really breaking it down. Well, you're not getting, you know, men between 18 and 24. And it turns out, you know, really, really applying data. And I think that, again, there's this, like, what point do you cross over from the right use of data? You know, so so Ambassador Burks is in that zone. Okay. She's super successful. Um, it's certainly at delivering the messages. She, she, and you know about PEPFAR's success, tying it to epidemic control. If you pay for this, we will deliver, you know, epidemic control. And and she is beloved by Christian conservatives yeah. who are back in power, who pick up the phone. And so she stays in charge, which, quite frankly, probably saved millions of lives, or well, you know, a significant number of lives. We do not have an evisceration of the program. Yeah. And she steers it through reauthorization. Uh-huh. Which was far from a given. Nope. Right? <laughs> Not a given. Yeah. What effect did COVID have on person-to-person HIV-AIDS treatment in Africa? Because a lot of these things that had been developed and had actually been worked and had been replicated in other countries, you could not do some of those things as March, April, May of, of, two, of 2020 continued. So we're still figuring out what happened. It's the news is not good, right? I mean, the Global Fund just issued, you know, we had, we had you know, a 22% decrease in HIV testing. Um, we know we're losing ground. We know we're going to lose ground in, in um, HIV prevention mm-hmm. for sure. But, but we also, male circumcision, which is effective HIV prevention, went down. Um, but, but for people who were on treatment, PEPFAR... Countries did it and programs did it, but PEPFAR does a very rapid pivot to where it can doing um, multi-month dispensing for all patients. Let, let me give you six months of drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, mm-hmm. get, let's try to get everybody, which they were already yeah. doing, but they really moved. They tried to re-jigger service delivery models to give people with HIV who were diagnosed the medications they needed in a way that was going to keep health facilities decongested. And, and to a large extent, they're succeeding. People who are on treatment are staying on treatment. I don't think it's it's going to be that simple forever, but there is there is there is success in that realm. Right? But you also have girls dropping out of school. You have a shutdown of the informal economy. You have migrant workers who are often men coming back, maybe wanting to get married, and suddenly you have a girl at home who, you know, and so you have you know, unwanted pregnancies, um, you know, the term is child marriage, although although it's it's not a term that really captures what happens when a when a you know a girl below the age of consent is paired with a much older man. But mm. you know there there are things that are that are under underway right now with HIV and tuberculosis and diagnosis and treatment of tuberculosis. All of these mm. things that that um, we have yet to fully calibrate the the the, the, the Do we have any data showing HIV transmission? Uh, that that we can isolate. So because new of these? data about HIV yeah. infections. Um, so you you the Global Fund data report is on on services delivered. So so not you not can really. infer yeah. you know, um, yeah. but you can and what you know what what again what I've been talking to researchers about is essentially that that if there are treatment interruptions with people on HIV or if you are missing diagnoses, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, and people yeah, are acquiring sorry. HIV, they're going to be very viremic, you know, and then there, and then you could see as there are treatment interruptions, you could have surges in HIV, new HIV infections that are just related to people who had been on treatment now being viremic and passing it on. Mm-hmm. So it's basically sort of taking your foot off the brake, yeah. um, you know, and, and really potentially being in a situation where a lot of hard-won um, gains because it is hard to end an epidemic without a vaccine. It's really hard, and I think the other thing just to just to sort of think about, right? It, it, you know, is that PEPFAR? It's been embattled for you know since since this flat funding moment, and really encouraged to stay in its lane, and really is a three disease program, and it's doing some things to continue in COVID, but what it's not doing and still isn't doing is really leveraging or, or being asked to leverage what it can do to provide COVID vaccines. So, so Haiti, which is the one PEPFAR country in the Northern Hemisphere, 
um, you know, less than 1% of Ooh. people in Haiti have COVID vaccines. And it's a PEPFAR country, right? So there so, should be that mechanism Right. We available. are not layering. PEPFAR isn't buying or procuring COVID vaccines, right? It's So, so we are not using our PEPFAR infrastructure to to really or the mindset that developed PEPFAR and and Gary Edson who you know back mm-hmm. in the day was in the situation room kicking the tires is now leading the COVID collaborative and just you know over and over again you know sort of urging a strategy let's set some let's prioritize countries let's look at our PEPFAR capacity let's look at the gaps like let's do what we back in the day when there were these maps and let's not romanticize any of these moments because 2003 was seven years too late but mapping a country, looking at the density of HIV, putting the hub and spoke models, having a plan with that degree of granularity, that that is totally doable, right? We're, UNICEF says yeah. we're two and a half billion syringes mm-hmm. short, right? That You could pet for that. Uh, Emily, how do, you, how do you handle this? I mean, day to day, month to month, year after year, you have these brutal swings from optimism and accomplishment and success to exhaustion and these constant fears of backsliding and the loss of so much progress. How do you, how do, you do that? This book is dedicated to four people, all of whom are still alive, Millie, Sissy, Yvette, and Lillian. Um, mm. And I, I do it because they do it. I mean, you know, they're they're all African white, and I, I don't want to. There, there's again, there's some narratives that are easy, you know, to sort of essentialize or, or make heroes of people who live. Somebody the other day was like, "Why are why are people who survive COVID heroes, and where are the heroes who are people living with HIV?" And mm. you know, and and sometimes we hold women with HIV up as as sort of mother courage. But but I will say, you know. I, I am in community with people who have lived through plagues that were an existential threat to them before. And when COVID mm-hmm. hit, what I realized is as much as I've been an AIDS activist my whole adult life, I don't have HIV, it affected me deeply. It, it never posed an existential threat to me and my family. Mm-hmm. Right? I personally never felt that I was at risk. I never worried yeah. about my partners getting HIV. Um, and and now to be living with existential threat and and to grasp what it means to have lived with that and to live with the the inequity and the fear, you know, I have friends who have done that and who are doing it again. And if they can do it, then I can do it too. So we are airing this episode right next to World AIDS Day. To wrap this up. Why does World AIDS Day still matter? What purpose can that serve to to keep so many different constituencies focused on this continuing plague? Right. Um, I mean, there's two things. Uh, you know, let's use it for a couple of things if we can. Um, you know, the president's um, PEPFAR stands for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, and it's still an emergency, right? It's been an emergency for 20 years. We have mm-hmm. to start to stretch our minds and understand that pandemics. Don't they, they don't en- work on a nice political time frame. They don't end. You know, they, they change, they wane, they ebb, they flow. But this is, you know, World AIDS Day is a day to recognize that we are we are 40 years into, a, you know, a pandemic. If you if you mark it from when the CDC report, you know, first came out. Yeah. Um, and 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 to to use it not to say, oh, my God, we failed because we didn't end it. But maybe in a way, two things. One is to realize it is an emergency, and we are we are heading towards a, a, a grave emergency that I am terrified about. We're, and we need both re- global fund replenishment increase, and we need increase in PEPFAR funding. We need John and Kanka saying appointed. I hope he, by, if this airs on December 2nd, I hope he's been appointed by, he's a nominee yeah. for the head of PEPFAR. Um, you can't have a rudderless, you don't have a rudderless program, but you need a political appointee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so we let's use it to understand what the world looks like um, when it's been grappling with a with a pandemic. Let's remember that pandemic. But I think also, you know, we we did we collective the global community did develop imperfect but still potent mechanisms for dealing with a modern plague. It right? can be done. It it happened, and yeah. and it happened at a global level, and it and it happened because of activists, right, who took on 
transnational capitalism and basically said, no, you know what? You don't get to win this time. And the same groups are trying, many of the same folks are, are working on vaccine equity and ending medical apartheid around PPE and oxygen and all those things. So, you know, it's a day to remember people we've lost. It's a day to remember, but it's also, and a day to remember how long the pandemic has gone on and a day to remember sort of all the things that have happened in the context, the work that's been done as well as what's undone. And there's a lot. Yeah. I'll take a sharp turn here. Uh, this is our chatter box, oh. which, in which we have placed some random questions that all, all of our guests pull one from and then, and then we'll answer. So go ahead and reach in, grab a random question, right. and I'll read that question to you, and then you can uh, answer this one. Oh. Recommend any recent book you've read other than your own, which I don't know if you've read it after you published it. That's hard after you've been through edits after edits okay. after edits. But recommend any recent book you've read, podcast you've heard, or TV show that you've watched that people listening to this should check out. Um, okay. I really want to recommend and perhaps influence the continuation of a cartoon called The Owl House, which is an amazing cartoon with like trans and non-binary uh -huh characters in like a great magic wizarding and like you know Luce is the, the hero and she's a Latinx uh -huh. young woman so um Owl House which I watched with my with my kids um who made me put in the acknowledgments of the book um how long I'd spent away from them while writing it mm. um so so I think that and then um uh I recently read and can't get out of my head a book called A Ghost in My Throat um, and it's by a, a woman named, um, I'm going to sort of not do her name justice, but Dor Doreen O'Grofna. She's okay. an Irish writer, um, that is about, it's a, it's both a, it's a book about loss and grief and poetry and trying to, um, have a working thinking mind in the midst of the confinement of motherhood. And so I think many hmm. of us who have been, trying to have working thinking minds amidst the confinement of COVID. How do you keep a train of thought? How do you keep inquiry? How do you find and grasp art? Um, because, you know, we, we fight plagues so we can have the art. What a great way to end. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. 